welcome to Let's Hear It. Let's Hear It is a podcast for and about the field of foundation and nonprofit communications produced by its two co-hosts, Eric Brown and Kirk Brown. No relation. Well said, Eric. And I'm Kirk. And I'm Eric. The podcast is generously sponsored by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation. We're talking to people about their work and what's happening in the field with the hopes of making this growing arena just a little bit more accessible to us all. You can find Let's Hear It on any podcast subscription platform. You can find us on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast. And you can email us at hello at Let's Hear Cast.com. Let us know if you have any thoughts about what you hear today, including people we should have on the show. And please, please rate us on iTunes. Yes, please rate us on iTunes. And if you have a fun story to tell, we'd love to hear that too. Now let's get to the show. Okay, we're back again. Man, Eric, you've been, uh, you've been on the road. You've been... Finding people in different places. Uh, who are we talking to this week? Well, today we are speaking with Naila Nasir, and she runs the Spencer Foundation. Spencer is a foundation that funds education research. It's based in Chicago. And Naila was vice chancellor for mm. diversity and inclusion, University of California, Berkeley. And she brings to the Spencer Foundation a completely different sensibility than it had before she got there. I, I don't think I'm saying anything negative in saying that, but it had been a place that was funding large institutions to conduct education research. And she is in the process of re-examining that strategy. And she's just so much fun. Naila is fun and funny and interesting. And I, she's shaking that place up in really great ways. And it's, it's really fun to talk to her about what she's doing because she's utterly open about what she knows and what she doesn't know, what she's learning. And she's very, very easy to speak with. Well, and, oh my goodness. I mean, we won't go on too much because let's get to you guys and have you talk and then we'll come back and chat. But a year and a half into the job, she shares. So she's relatively new. And I just want to say natural communicator. It was so fun to listen to this conversation. <laughs> She's great. She's just <laughs> terrific. I love her. Okay, great. We'll listen to you guys chat and then we'll come back and we'll talk a little bit more. Okay, Naila Nasir, thank you so much for taking the time. This is going to be fun. I'm, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm looking forward to this. So you are the sixth president of the Spencer Foundation. Yes. Uh, why on earth did they hire you? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> have they ever um, told I'll, you? <laughs> I'll conjecture some guesses. Go ahead. Um, I think they hired me because they were looking for someone who could both think about research in deep and interesting ways and also help push the field forward and kind of have an innovative, creative vision about what we should be doing. Mm-hmm. And so what is... We'll back up. What's the Spencer Foundation do? The Spencer Foundation funds education research. We are a huge fish in a very tiny pond. <laughs> Can you turn around? Is it like one of the, right. like you go to the Chinese restaurant? No, you cannot move. <laughs> what's it like? And what's it like to be a big fish in a small pond? Particularly it's, in the foundation world. Uh, it's so much fun. Um, <laughs> are you really been, popular now? That's the first so, question. Well, let me just say, I've always been popular. Oh, okay. This has added another layer to my popularity. Uh But um, I think what's exciting about it is you get to set a vision, and it's a vision that people attend to Mm -hmm. and feel compelled by and want to be a part of. 
what got you to this place? I mm-hmm. say this to a lot of people. Nobody goes into their parents' bedroom you know, when they're seven <laughs> years old, like, Mommy, Daddy, I want to be a foundation president. Right. Yes. Um, it's been a long and circuitous journey to this place. Um, but because we're an academic foundation, you know, our, our presidents tend to be scholars. So I was a scholar most of my um, adult life and have been on university campuses since I was 17. So this is actually the first time I have not been located on a university campus since I was 17 years old. But I had also gotten pulled into various leadership positions, both in my field through the American Educational Research Association and also on my campus and was a university administrator. I was a vice chancellor Mm -hmm. at Berkeley before I did this. Were you teaching also while you were vice chancellor? I didn't teach while I was vice chancellor. I ran my research group still, though, so I still had students, and I was in close proximity needed students. Yeah, but I hadn't taught. I hadn't taught in a year or so. Uh-huh. By the way, go Bears. Go Bears. <laughs> <laughs> Can you talk about your academic career a little bit? How did you end up in that field? What Yeah, I didn't intend that either. Actually, most of what's happened to me career-wise was not by my design or intention. I intended to be a first-grade teacher. That was my plan. That was my life plan. No kidding. (laughs) And when I was almost, um, I was a junior at Berkeley, I was walking to campus, ran into one of my professors who asked me, typical question, what are you going to do when you graduate? And I said, I'm going to be a first-grade teacher. And he said, that's great, but get your master's degree first. That hadn't occurred to me. I didn't come from a family where, you know, people got master's degrees. So I had kind of looked up what that was, and I trusted him. I followed his advice. But when I was researching master's programs, they weren't that exciting to me, but they happened to be back then. This is like pre-internet. They were, they were brochures. Uh-huh. The master's program descriptions happened to be next to the PhD program descriptions. And I was like, well, that doesn't look very compelling, but that looks really interesting. And I ended up applying to PhD programs, not realizing that what that trained you for was to be a professor. That wasn't anything that was on my radar. I just thought the program looked interesting. And where did you do the PhD? I did the PhD at UCLA. Um, It was a wonderful, wonderful time in my life, a wonderful institution. And then I had kind of a, a crisis of identity when I was finishing, figuring out whether I wanted to continue in the academy and take a professorship or whether I wanted to do something else. And like life does sometimes, I needed a job and realized that I actually had very few marketable skills. (laughs) So (laughs) I became a professor. I mean, I've also always loved research, but I wasn't sure at the time that I felt like research was how one could change the world. And I wanted to change the world. Uh But thankfully, so so it's interesting coming back then to bring all of it full circle back to this place where this is actually about making the research impactful to the world Uh in a different way. So that very same problem that I framed as I was finishing a PhD and felt torn about is is back in my lap to help figure out what to do about it. Which reminds me about not having marketable skills. Mm -hmm. They say, if you can't do, teach. If you can't teach, teach gym. If you can't teach gym, become a consultant. (laughs) And if you can't be a consultant, you should start a podcast. So, but you have... So problematic from that. (laughs) You're speaking to a person in education. I I reject the premise of that set of It won't be the last time every premise I've uh, offered has been rejected. Now... Academia sometimes asks questions that don't seem all that useful in the real world. Right. And there's this like little sliver of academia that people want to actually be able to apply. Right. 
And right. it seems to me that that's what you're doing at Spencer is you're trying to fund research that people are going to use that's going to lead to some good outcome. Mm-hmm. Is that is that new? I'm not just saying for right. Spencer, but is that kind of new in the field? Do academics actually care that some good thing is going to happen as a result? I don't want to sound too cynical, but... I don't think that's new, and I don't think it's rare that academics care about the impact of their research and the state of the world. Right? I actually think most academics care a lot about how their work is how their work intersects with the big problems they'd like to see solved. I think though that that we as scholars don't get trained to think about what that application look, looks like or how we can be most useful. So I don't think it's an issue around intention or mm-hmm. what the academy or what scholars care about. I think it's more the the kind of the way that the structures privilege certain kinds of thinking and doing, right? Scholars get promoted because we publish in high-prestige academic journals and because we write books that other academics read. You don't get rewarded for doing the public-facing work by the academy. So I think there are some structural things we need to shift to make the to make it so that people who really want to do this work are able to do it effectively. And are you trying to shake that up? Yeah. Ish. Yeah. <laughs> I have some co-conspirators in that effort. And again, it's not like this is not it's not entirely novel. Like many universities are actually moving towards thinking about what engaged research looks like, how they can be responsive to both their local context and the national context. Um, so I do think this is on the hearts and minds of the country, not just like something that's happening here at Spencer, but we do want to be a part of creating new kinds of opportunities for research to matter to the world. Mm-hmm. I want to talk a little bit about philanthropy. Mm-hmm. You So you were on the board. I was on the board. I was, then, yeah, not for that long, but yeah. yeah. And then you got the job. This isn't a Dick right. Cheney type thing. <laughs> not this is it where you, where you cooked your own? <laughs> no, I had absolutely no intention. <laughs> okay. I got that. So you got, your denial is on right. the record. Got yes. it. Yes. Um, uh, what did you perceive philanthropy to be able to do, and what's it been like? And when, has there been any difference between the perception and the reality? Well, so, so I say this when I'm talking to people about Spencer a lot. I think what I perceived is kind of a bottomless pot of money that you could that you would spend to yeah. do great things in the world. And it's true that there's a lot of money that you spend to do great things in the world, but it is indeed not bottomless. And and I think it's like any anything to do with money, you start to realize, wow, if I only had this much more, we could do this thing with it, or that much more, we could do that thing with it. And so you, you kind of realize that money is both incredibly important for making things happen and wholly insufficient mm-hmm. for making things happen, right? You can incentivize work to yeah. be done, but one, you can't fund all of the work you'd like to fund, and you have to be really strategic to think about what kind of investment is going to result in the kind of outcome that you want to see. Has there been anything that was either that surprised you for good or ill, that something that didn't, didn't cost that much money produced some kind of outsized benefit or something that you thought was going to be really great and it kind of fizzled? I don't know if I've been here long enough to see the long-term fizzling or blowing up. <laughs> I mean, I do think historically it's been really striking to me how, and kind of amazing how this foundation in its history has funded certain things that became whole subfields. Mm-hmm. And you know, I'm sure there were things that fizzled, but people talk a lot about there was a, a large training grant program through the late 90s-ish, and it's the program people talk most about having built a new approach to research training in the field. 
they often want to bring it back, and then I have to tell them that it happened during an incredible growth in the markets. <laughs> so there was all this, all this new expendable cash that mm-hmm. had to get out of the door really quickly. So that's another, I think, interesting realization that, that obviously foundations are strategic, but what we have to spend in a given year is so contingent on how the investments, how well the investments are doing, mm-hmm. that the the it's a bit unpredictable when you'll have lots of flush cash and when you'll have less, and you don't really get to control it entirely. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden, I'm you know watching the investment markets really closely every day, first thing in the morning. <laughs> and I've never been. I was one of those people that when I was young, I was like, money doesn't matter. Like we don't think about money. Like that's kind of beneath all of us to think about. And now I'm like waking up, like how much money is there? <laughs> how much money? Is how there? much is there? <laughs> you know, I haven't since things have been so. The markets have been so volatile the past couple of weeks. I had to stop because I was driving myself crazy. But our endowment hovers around five hundred million. Okay, yeah. so that's real money. It's real money. So you're putting out so, twenty five or and change a mm-hmm. year. That's right. I, I would say, yeah, yeah. which buys a yeah. fair amount of research. It does. Um, it does. Needless yeah. to say, percussive laughter at your jokes, but right. but uh, right. <laughs> My God, you've never been so, so funny. Funny, funny. I'm just, I'm best company ever. She's amazing. It's been such a transformation. <laughs> Who are you turning to for peer? It's, they say that foundation presidents are lone, popular but lonely. Yes. What, who, who, who do you, whose shoulder do you cry on? I have I have actually really a great network of foundation president colleagues. I have a I feel like there's a national network of folks who run academic foundations that I that I often will go to for advice. There's a local network of, uh-huh. of folks leading foundations here in Chicago. There's a local women of color network of black women primarily leading foundations. So I actually have felt really blessed in the space of having people to talk to about the struggles. Uh-huh. Um, like, how do you manage a board? Like, that's new for me. Or, you know, how do you think about supporting program staff that are on time-limited contracts? So there are these things that are specific to philanthropy. I think the best piece of advice I got this year was someone who said, potential grantees' job are to ask for money. Hmm. Your job is to say yes or no, mostly no. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and it just put into clear relief that the the job is actually about vetting requests. And, and you need the requests. Like, you need the people that mm-hmm. are coming to you, even if sometimes you feel bad when you can't fund everything that you'd like to fund. But you know Larry Kramer, my old boss. Mm. He's got this button on his desk mm. that is twenty-seven ways to say no. Right, right. <laughs> Your president right. like, oh no, right. hell no, right. not in a million right. years. And the same time, at the same time, like you have to do that, but still do it in a way that honors the work people have brought to you to right. consider. Like, which is no small thing. Like, people took time to write proposals and put ideas together, and and so there's a um, you have to balance that. I don't know, that willingness to say no with a respect for the stuff people, you know, people are, are bringing to you. Yeah. That it's sensitive. And, academ- you know, we are ac- academics, are, we're sensitive about our work. Oh, very. You know, like, we don't like to be rejected. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not enough just to tell them to go sell stuff on Craigslist. No, like, no, know, that doesn't work. But one of the things we have been working on that I'm very, very proud of is increasing the amount of feedback that we give when uh-huh. people send proposals to us. 
because historically we just have felt like we haven't had the bandwidth to give really deep feedback to all of our um, all of our potential grantees, and we're moving towards a, a new model where we're really prioritizing giving feedback to the field. So if people get a no, they also get a and here's why, and here's what we liked in this, and here's what could have been stronger for next time. So well, that ooh, perfect segue. Mm-hmm. That you're like yeah. the setter ah. in the in the volleyball game, and I'm going to spike it with the question, which okay. is, I know you're looking at the role of communications. Mm-hmm. To advance the foundation, mm-hmm. and you, you know, one might think we are a research, a, a august research institution. <laughs> Everybody who's anybody knows who we are. Mm-hmm. We don't need to communicate, but you don't seem to share that mm-hmm. that old a way of thinking. What What is the role of communications for you? How do you use it, and how does that help strengthen the organization or the grants or any of that mm-hmm. stuff? Well, we've been doing a lot of work around that, as you know. I think for me. The role of communications is to be intentional about your identity in the field. And I think when you're not intentional about your identity, what you represent, who you belong to, who you work for, what your purpose is, then people will make assumptions. And I think for us, given that we're a research foundation, those assumptions can, those assumptions can be dangerous because we want to make sure that we're messaging, we're open to the entire set of possibilities for research across the field, Mm -hmm. not just certain subfields or certain types of scholars. So for me, the communications function is about being intentional about who we are and that people know who we are and what we're doing. So it's not just... I think some people from the outside think about communications as self-promotion. Like, it's not just about promoting ourselves. It's actually about also creating two-way mechanisms where we also can listen, where we can engage, where the work we're doing kind of has an iterative iterative cycle Mm -hmm. with the field. So it's not just us saying, look at us, look at us, look at us, Mm -hmm. but where we're trying to create ways to be in deeper partnership with the field. Well, that warms the cockles of my teeny tiny little heart because I I happen to agree with you completely. I guess maybe I'll I'll just close out with, like, what is the biggest surprise that you have had in your year and a half, I guess, now Mm -hmm. here? What was something that just has surprised you? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, I think I would say the the biggest, I don't know if it's surprise, but the thing that just hits me over the head is wherever I go, and again, big fish, small pond, wherever I go in my small pond, people have stories about how their research funding from the Spencer Foundation shifted their career or allowed them to do this one piece of research that was foundational. And you just kind of realize how important research funding can be as scholars are building careers and over multiple generations of people. So just mm-hmm. the, the, the amount of impact this foundation has had on, on, the, on the field and on the individual careers of scholars is just really both kind of heartwarming and, and daunting to think about making sure that we continue that work, but also I think just as an illustration of, of the work you can, you can do in philanthropy that can be really powerful. So the little butterfly wing. Yeah. With the flip, <laughs> right. That's right. With the flippy floppy sound of right. the butterfly wing right. in our ears. I will say thank you so yes. much for your time. Okay, thank and this you. This has really been fun. Thanks. Yeah, great talking to you. You're listening to Let's Hear It, a podcast about foundation and nonprofit communications, hosted by Kirk Brown and Eric Brown. Let's Hear It is made possible through the generous support of the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation. Thank you.
You can find Let's Hear It online at letshearitcast.com or on Twitter at, at Let's Hear It Cast. If you're enjoying the show, please rate us on iTunes so more people can find us. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. Okay, Eric, I just want to be in the fly in the wall every time you and Naila get together and talk because uh, <laughs> she's a natural communicator. At the second she started discussing her role, I've never met her. I'm not that familiar with the Spencer Foundation. I just wanted to hear everything she had to say. I wanted to know everything about her history. you know. And then when she's got into the things she's thinking about related to the research they're funding, academic research, and the role of engagement, I was wrapped. I thought it was just such a great conversation. What a treat to be part of that. She's just really eager to learn and to listen, but she also has very specific ideas about where she wants to take that foundation. And I think that's a wonderful combination because she really has a place to go. She has a set of goals, but she also is very willing to have those goals informed by other other people. And she acknowledges that communications is a two-way street. And she understands that it is really important to be able to articulate the goals and the strategies of, of the foundation. And then it's at least as important to listen carefully to what the field has to say and to get a sense of how the foundation can use its resources to try and improve education research. You know, I love your little bit where you're like, nobody grows nobody at seven years old says, I want to be a foundation president. How do you prepare for that? I loved that. <laughs> that riff where she starts talking about she wanted to be a first grade teacher. That was her start. And this whole <laughs> journey that everybody goes through where wherever you start, you end up here. And, and she had such a journey she described about that. But I was thinking that first instinct, I want to be with students at that point in their life. It actually feels like it's that is a huge asset for her even today as she's doing this work with Spencer. You know, I almost feel like you could like extend that idea all the way throughout that arc of how you how you help a foundation that's really working on research and different kinds of research expand how it has its impact. It's like, yeah, if you can really equip yourself to talk to first graders, you've probably got a really good shot of helping move that forward or pulling that off. She's one of the few people who's in the business that they always wanted to be in, in one way or the other. She uh, She wanted to be an educator. And now she has this platform to be a super educator in that the work that they're funding is will improve how education is delivered in America and in a way that helps students who need it the most, which has an idea of what the real power of education is in this country, which is it can be a true equalizer. I think that particularly now as we're finally exploring questions of race and opportunity in new ways that foundations are starting to think about it, that these large research institutions are are taking on in new ways. Having her be the one to help ask those questions is, it's a little new. And the fact that she is open to ideas and willing to play with ideas is great as well. And I mean, she couldn't be more perfect for that job, if you ask me. But it's where I think we're going to have to take education in, in the future. And I'm glad that she's has, you know, money to be able to ask important questions. Well, and just, you know, it's funny. She's been on campus, as she says, since age 17. But it, it certainly doesn't feel like an ivory tower because of her sensibilities for what she's trying to do and how she's trying to do it. Though I do think she gave us a new tagline for the podcast, which is few marketable well. skills. Few marketable <laughs> skills should be our tagline. I really I love that. All but, right. I'll <laughs> you know, for that one. science communication, academic communication, 
even the importance of funding research. You know, I've certainly seen in, in the work that I've been part of at times, the ability to fund just basic research or applied research, but it's so hard to find those dollars. And, you know, she discusses at the end just how people will come up to her and say how their careers were transformed with their support is such a wonderful thing to hear. And I completely get it. And this idea that um, our current way of thinking about academic work, academics don't get rewarded as much for their public facing work, that actually the incentives of the system in a sense, pull some of this best thinking out of the public life, you will, or, or make that less important because we're, we're kind of pushing it into other arenas. I just think that that's such an interesting thing for our whole field to be thinking about too, because this is, this kind of work is so crucial for us to keep that generative process alive of how we're trying to iterate and improve. And yet some of our best thinkers, our brightest minds, they're off kind of in their silo doing their thing while the rest of us are off doing our thing. Never do these paths cross, it seems. And yet people like the Spencer Foundation, they have an opportunity to kind of bridge those gaps. And that just felt like a really crucial part of the role maybe they're trying to play or are already playing in just how just how fundamental that all feels, how important that all feels. Well, the communication side of this is getting back to, I don't know, our nominal topic in hand communications. The communication (laughs) side of this is such a big deal. And I remember back in my Hewlett days, we funded lots and lots of research and the inevitable question was, what good thing will happen as a result of your research? And the good researchers who really understood what their role is in the context of making change could answer that question. They could say, well, you know, there are policymakers here who could benefit from this research. There are research methods that we could improve that would that would have all sorts of implications. Or there's a, a bunch of other implica- ways you could take this research and actually produce a, a better outcome. You know, those are the folks you really want to make sure your funding and you want to be able to help them communicate their work in effective ways or to translate their work into ways that others can communicate. And then, of course, you know, the seventh circle of hell is you go in and you say, what are the implications of of this research? And the researcher says, not my problem. I don't think about it. It's not my deal. I got tenure. I got published and have a nice life. And where the funders are, I think where funders are, are making a difference is when they require in one way or another for their grantees to think about the implications of the research they're funding them to do. Well, you know, this isn't a, what do you call it, a jobs program for the nice. We're actually trying to get stuff done here. And that's when it's really cool to see the incentives, I would say, properly Uh, you know, aligned, where you say, look, we're going to fund you to do this research because we actually want good things to happen as a result of it. And that's where, that's when it's great to see this kind of stuff happening. As a communications person, of course, it's really great because you have your grantee who's going into this enterprise understanding that there are some outcomes that we're looking for. And, you know, the other part is that if, if your research failed, you know, that's that's data, too, because, you know, right, sure. research that fails that you don't tell anybody about is like the road. You take away the road closed sign and, you know, people just go flying over the <laughs> over the, right. the, uh, the the cliff. So right. they call I think they call them negative findings, which is sort of a terrible way to put it. But useful information is don't do this. It doesn't work. And people are so afraid to share what doesn't work. And I think that goes across the board 
in nonprofits and philanthropy for a variety of reasons. But we still have to find ways to take away that perverse reverse incentive, which is if you didn't find the answer you were looking for, we still need to know. Well, along those lines, she uses this phrase engaged research. And I'm and I'm listening to you guys talk and I'm just screaming yes the second it lands, you know, this notion of being engaged with the research that we're doing and sparking and sparking engagement. And it made me think, you know, as we're running our series of conversations here, wouldn't it be interesting to maybe talk to some Spencer Foundation grantees who really are embracing this? You know, because again, this whole notion of how our researchers, how our academics, how our scientists can readily and accessibly with, with, you know, pretty good late use of lay language, bring people into their process and share their findings. It's such a challenge across the board. Everything that we do is evidence-based and yet you can just end up in this terrible world of, you know, jargon and, and nobody knows what anybody's saying anymore. And so it would just be, I, I would love it if we had a chance to talk to some Spencer Foundation grantees who've really had a good experience with this and just learn. I'd love to hear people talking about engaged research. I just think that that's, that's a, a holy yeah, grail concept. You know, that's a fun idea. By the way, Kirk, you, I just had this image of you screaming, yes, yes, as you're listening to the podcast, driving along in your electric car and, and having somebody kind of look over to you and thinking that you're, you know, yelling at talk radio or something like that. But no, no, no. He's listening to a podcast about communications. That's right. That's right. And more specifically about academic research in the field of education. <laughs> in yes. And I'm screaming. Yes. yes. So, yes. Totally. That's right. Here we are. This is everything. And another one of those you had me at hello moments was towards the end. She's talking about honoring the work that's brought to you, even as you're having to say no. And that willingness to say no with respect. And again, I just, you get this idea of just not, not only natural communicator, but natural leader in the work mm -hmm. that she's doing. Yeah. But that balance of of acknowledging all of the work that's going on. And, and I do continue to have this in my kind of own process around how we even view philanthropy and its role. There's this crucial, necessary, but also very interesting, let's say, but it could be troubling, it could be problematic, gatekeeper role that philanthropy has to play about what gets supported and what doesn't, right? And yep. and, yeah. and and God help all of us that any of us are going to really ever get that right, given all of the forces aligned there. But just the willingness, you know, a year and a half into the role of being in this, and as she says, I mean... She just she calls the Spencer Foundation a, a big fish in a small pond, and you know, and, and I don't know whatever size or pond is, but you know, you're allocating twenty five million dollars a year of grant making. It's probably some of the most precious resources in the world, you know, given how much need there is and how few resources are available. But just that that willingness to kind of acknowledge that part of it felt just yeah. it was just really interesting, you know, to hear her reflect on that. Well, that was a fun one. <laughs> so there we have it. Well, Naila, thank you so much for joining us and Spencer Foundation. Man, very important and good work ahead. So any last comments, Eric? That was great to listen to. No, it's great. And, and I'll just put a pitch out there to folks who are doing this kind of work. We'd love to hear about how you're using research to advance policy, how you're 
using research to advance practice or any other yeah. kind of approach to philanthropy that isn't always considered. This is not always the norm for how people think that foundations or nonprofits communicate. We're dealing with a sort of a semi-evidence-free society these days in certain quarters. If people are learning where research and evidence actually makes a difference, that's an important story to tell as well, because we've all become so cynical about whether facts matter anymore. Somewhere deep in what's left of my tiny little soul, I think that they do. But it would be helpful to hear from people who can give us some examples. Yeah, that's right. Some hardcore proof of that. <laughs> I completely agree. I completely agree. So here's for evidence. Yeah, that's right. Here's for evidence. That's our new that's our new tagline. Well, Eric, thank you. That was really awesome. Thanks for doing that. Okay, everybody, that's it for this episode. Please let us know if you have any thoughts about what you heard today or people we should have in the show, and that includes yourself. And we'd like to thank Maggie Brown, our intrepid production coordinator. Sarah Morgan, our tireless social and digital media maven. John Ali, the tuneful and inspiring composer of our theme music. Ben Rockwood, our brilliant partner behind the production curtain. The John S. and James L. Knight Foundation for supporting this work and for a host of other important initiatives, particularly around communications and journalism. Thank you, thank you. And we certainly thank our guests and of course all of you and thank you mr brown (laughs) no 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 thank you mr brown (laughs) till next time let's hear it 